Hi, and welcome to this installment of our new books at the Heyman Center panel podcast, sponsored by Columbia's Office of the Divisional Deans in the Faculty of Arts and Sciences, the Department of English and Comparative Literature, the Department of Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies, and the Society of Fellows in Heyman Center for the Humanities. I'm Anne Levitsky. Today's podcast celebrates Associate Professor of English and Middle Eastern, South Asian, and African Studies at Columbia, Jennifer Wenzel's book, The Disposition of Nature, Environmental Crisis and World Literature. First, we'll hear Jennifer speaking about her book at the panel, and then we'll hear the comments Eleanor Johnson, Associate Professor of English and Comparative Literature at Columbia, made at the panel. Wonderful. Thank you so much um, to uh, Heyman Center and the Humanities Division for organizing this and, and for these just really generous and, and careful and uh, generative responses um, from these three panelists and then all of you for coming. Um, it's, it's really a, a delight and an honor. Um, I guess I, I'll kind of um, think about how to, how to respond to, to each of these things and, and I think I would, I would start with um, Eleanor in terms of um, questions of, of waste and, and forests. Um, I think I think with the question of prostitution and, and is it resistance or survival, I, I, I think what happens in that story and in my discussion of it in the chapter is thinking about how a, a strategy of survival perhaps is framed in the narrative as possibly an act of resistance, mm-hmm. but I'm not sure that the character herself would see it as that necessarily. And, and, and I'm, I'm, as I'm saying that, I'm, I'm also thinking about Flint, right? And, mm-hmm. and how to think about um, how to think about the predicament and, and the kinds of action that, that can be taken. Um, about the question of gender and, and waste, um, I suppose, you know, as you were talking about waste, I, I remember that um, that wonderful statement uh, by George Capensis that I quote in, in the book that um, if we talk about a related term of commons, right, and thinking about the ecological and economic function of, of commons land, and what Capensis says is that when people talk about um, people surviving on a dollar or two a day, it's through the margin of the commons that they're able to do that, right? And so Thinking in terms of gender, I think, would raise questions of reproduction and, and production and, and how the commons um, fits into that differently, but also the spatiality and the kind of vulnerability of, of women in, in those kinds of, of spaces. Um, I, uh, I guess I also wanted to say on the, on the question of, of waste that uh, one way of thinking about the origin of this chapter is something that... Um, that I'm pretty sure that Gayatri Spivak said, but I don't know where, and <laughs> so um, that, uh, that imperialism is at heart or at, or at base fundament- fundamentally the creation of private property in land, um, which I suppose is kind of obvious when you think about it, but when I first heard it, it, it really struck me, and so the chapter is partly about working through that idea without ever having... Um, said it explicitly. Um, so what's, you know, what happens when, when waste becomes property and is wasted? Um, I, I would turn uh, then to the um, provocations from Elizabeth Pavanelli. Um, uh, yes, I, I, that, um, I, I don't remember whether, which of the, the Caribbean films it is, but it, the, um, the, the one that cites Dow 
um, I think is so resonant to me in thinking about Dow and you know particularly Dow for what I'm about to say, and then other corporations for the second part. Dow as a purveyor of both poisons and world imaginings, right? So thinking about um, uh, when I'm thinking about the imagination, it's partly it's about reclaiming uh, the imagination from uh, from forces like that and. With regard to infrastructure, I think it may be a different of the Caribbean films that has this astonishing shot of, it's, it's kind of like in a speculative mode, but um, this astonishing shot of basically like the infrastructure of fracking. And it capture. I would actually be curious to hear whether the sound that you hear with that shot is a sound that you captured or sound that you created, because I can imagine that it's the sound that this infrastructure actually makes but it, ha it gives it the most kind of otherworldly speculative effect, right? So it's impossible to think of this thing as existing in the present world, but of course it does, right? So it's such a wonderful thing. Um, I am not sure, I, I, I take your point about how um, the language of scale uh, can be a language of abstraction and the method that I'm working with in terms of metonymic contiguity, particularly in terms of toxicity and thinking mm -hmm. about the flows of material, right? Seems to, uh, um, uh, as you say so wonderfully, put the material and the abstract in, into tension. Um, but I guess, I guess with the idea of, of world imagining from below, maybe I'm I'm not sure that I could quite say that I'm trying to do something other than abstraction, but it's I, I'm trying to do something other than the kind of cosmopolitan yeah. view of the whole from that that kind of yeah. a, a extraction from yeah. the planet, right? But to think in terms of a, a, a an earthy, loamy groundedness from which one th reads or thinks from near to there, and so um, so I absolutely take the point about holding on to the material and and uh, so I mean the question that I posed for yourself for myself listening to you was you know how can the imagination be material and I think that that's what I'm trying to hold on to um, so yeah I suppose what I would yeah, how can the imagination be, be material? And um, about the question of Flint, uh, I mean, I'm still trying to think through this. I, I guess what I'm thinking is that um, what resonates for me is the importance of thinking about environmental justice or actually existing environmental injustice in terms of these layered histories of immiseration and extraction, right? And so. Uh, there's a moment in the book where I quote um, the Nigerian writer Chimamanda Adichie quoting somebody else about the, the ways in which histories always start from secondly and leave out that. Yeah, that's what I would, yeah, that's, <laughs> I didn't have time. Yeah. That's, that's, this part of the book is just amazing, yeah. Yeah, so, and leaving out the original layers of, of whatever version of, of badness is, is happening and, and how those original, it's very, fancy literary formulation layers of badness, but how, how, the, how those continue to, to work uh, in, in the present. And so, you know, Flint, um, uh, there's a lot I could say about Flint, um, but, but, but I, I really appreciate what you've said. And, and for me, I think the particularity as 
a former Michigander um, living not far from Flint was um, how easily got lost in national conversation the particular political machinations that had, before the lead decisions were ever made had disenfranchised systematically African-American communities, right? So that's a political decision that ostensibly has nothing to do with lead water, but is, is, a, is a kind of middle layer of, of that kind of um, disenfranchisement. So this, this is really helpful. Um, I guess the, um, I would turn then to Mary's uh, comments, and, and I should say, you know, uh, this book, uh, being so long in the making, has many points of origin, right? And um, one of them is when I finished my first book, Bulletproof, that um, Mamadi mentioned, I knew I wanted to do something on post-colonial studies, environmentalism, and world literature as a, an emergent framework for, for literary studies. And so I, um, as I was reading for that project, I, I took down from my, sh from my shelf and reread um, Mary Louise Pratt's 1992 book, Imperial Eyes. <laughs> and, and I was, which I, it was the, one of the first books I bought and read, not on a syllabus, but when I was getting into this field in graduate school. And so when I returned to it in the late 2000s, I was just kind of astonished by how much of what I was trying to do was already there and how we have just been catching up to what she's doing. So it's, it's just a real honor to have, <laughs> to have her um, uh, be such an example, um, an example and, and a real enabling force in this project. So it's a real, it's a real honor. Um, and in, in terms of thinking about um, the, the ending, or sorry, thinking about the question of, um, you cited Elizabeth Gross on, on kind of um, forging a future, right? And it resonated with something you said too about the connections are, are there and not there and, and, and wanting to form them. And um, I, I think absolutely that, that sense of, um, uh, in a moment of, of uh, crisis, uh, uh, pausing the imagination as a terrain on which um, some action may be taken. Um, I want to read from um, the, the last paragraph of the book, and I'll say before I do that, that um, something that's really surprising to me is um, after uh, after I finished this book and I was giving a talk based on the introduction and, and this last paragraph, I realized suddenly that my first book ends in exactly the same place. Um, <laughs> um, even though it has nothing to do with it, um, but uh, my first book was about, um, as Mamadou said, the afterlives of this anti-colonial millenarian prophecy in 19th century South Africa, and which was uh, devastating for the people who uh, put credence in the prophecy and acted upon it and destroyed their, uh, thereby their food source and, and the anchor of their culture. And in that first book, I, I examined the literary, cultural, political afterlives of that project, looking for uh, not only um, devastation, but for traces of um, hope and utopian possibility and the ways in which it had been remembered and reconfigured. So um, I'll read, I'm not gonna read that, but, um, but basically just translate this into, uh, into that first book and, and you'll get exactly the same thing. And I did not know that as, as, I, was, as I was writing, right? Um, so let, let me just have a drink of water. Um. 
The disposition of nature is driven by a conviction about the capacity of the imagination to open up alternative possibility in relationships among humans and with a more than human world. It has also shown how counterfactual literary imagining can entrench habits of mind and modes of being that foster environmental injustice. And I'll pause just to say that this is an important thing to me about the book, and not pointing to literature as the solution to environmental crisis or environmental injustice, mm -hmm. but the ways in which it has been complicit in how we think about nature and therefore an environmental crisis. In his essay, The Truth of Fiction, the Nigerian novelist Chinua Achebe distinguishes between malignant and beneficent fictions. Beneficent fiction, according to Achebe, never forgets that it is fiction, and malignant fiction never knows that it is. Malignant fictions never say, let us pretend, Achebe observes. Perhaps this quibble with Achebe derives from my being a literary critic rather than a novelist, but I understand the relationship between the bounds of the imagination and the real world to be more porous and permeable than he allows, along the lines of Stacey Alimo's notion of transcorporeality, by which she means the flows of matter, toxic substances, power, and ideas across living bodies. And I'll pause again to say that that's the Alimo transcorporeal transcorporeality is where I would think about matter yeah. moving uh, and moving in a way that I have to think about something that I'll call scale today, but maybe I'll call it something else later. Yeah. Violation and ravaging are one mode of interaction between the imagination and the real world, but there are others too. Like toxic compounds, their transit obstructed by neither legal distinctions nor cell membranes, cultural logics travel among multiple realms of experience and modes of discourse. They are persistent and volatile, transformed by their circulation and, and shaped by pressures of mediation, form, genre, and rhetorical situation. Words like nature, community, and justice don't sound or mean the same to everyone or in all contexts. Instead of categorizing them as beneficent or malignant, perhaps we should understand all fictions as risky, unpredictable in the way their causes and effects work themselves out across time and space. Such risks entail not only exposure to the possibility of harm, but also leaps of faith into the unknown and as yet unrealized, and the possibility that the touch of innocence, that's Howard Zinn, that we tend to imagine about ourselves, <coughs> might be countered with a newfound sense of complicity, entanglement, or self-reflexive solidarity. Fixing the world? I harbor no certainty that reading for the planet is up to the task. But I do believe that the project of environmental justice is impossible without it, and this narrative intelligence is what I know how to offer the future. Let go of hope and keep fighting. Let us pretend and see what happens. Thank you. Now we'll hear the comments Columbia professor Eleanor Johnson made at the panel. Yeah, <laughs> thank you very much. Um, thank you for inviting me to respond to this exciting, complex, and intelligent book. Uh, many of you who just heard that introduction might be wondering, sort of, what am I doing here? <laughs> medieval theology. So I'm writing a book now on medieval ecological thought. And I know that sounds like a contradiction in terms, but it isn't. Um, and in particular, I'm writing about how ideologies and ideas of waste, which is the topic of this third chapter of Jennifer's book, in late medieval England combined to spur ecological philosophies in late medieval poetry. 
I also, though, work a lot primarily through my teaching, but also through my research on avant-garde 21st century feminist poetry. And when I'm doing that, I'm looking at how it, too, deals with ecological change and imperilment, and especially with dynamics of waste and overuse, underuse, improper use. In both my periods of study, so that's sort of the 14th century mostly, and the 21st century is my sort of like nighttime occupation, <laughs> I examine these ecological philosophies by paying attention to poetic forms and to how they do the work of ecological thought in the periods when the sort of like actually robust um, scientific vocabulary is either not yet developed, Middle Ages, or under a tremendous amount of pressure, 21st century. So methodologically, <clears throat> Jennifer and I actually have a lot in common. Jennifer sets out in her book, which focuses, as we've seen, on contemporary world literature and environmental crisis, she sets out to mine literary forms for their insights into ecological crisis and environmental catastrophe. By attending to literary form and literary formal specificity, Jennifer forces us to register the importance of parts, of particulars, of the local, in thinking globally. She reminds us that thinking about the world is a trap. It's a hermeneutic trap, it's an epistemological trap, because the world is always many worlds, each centered on its own concerns, conventions, tropes, resource allocation challenges, and indeed poetic forms, literary forms. This notion of particularity in the local underpins her boldly comparative method throughout, in which she looks at African and Indian literatures, this is in the third chapter now, as rhizomatically but not causally connected spheres within which to watch the legacies of colonialism play out in discrete environmental harm. Thinking this way gets us out of the trap of imagining our way into sort of a radical otherness in a posture of disantiated pity, and instead positions us to recognize the contiguity yet particularity of all ecological imperilment. As Jennifer puts it, quote, instead of metaphoric sympathy, premise on difference, this mode of narrative generates metonymic solidarity, a horizontal or lateral relation appropriate to a world imagining from below. So when I read that sentence, I immediately like copied it into my own book manuscript with like a bunch of exclamation points all around it. And I think this is really, really important, this idea of, of trying to shift our critical consciousness from something metaphoric and thus substitutional to something metonymic and thus contiguous and connected in a way that is not based upon linear causality, but actually just a sort of like rhizomatic linkages. <clears throat> this solidarity that Jennifer assigns to this sort of metonymic, the, the possibility of this metonymic way of thinking, though should never elide our awareness that some populations, some worlds, we might say, are far more immediately and catastrophically vulnerable to ecological change than others. This is one of the really powerful elements of her method and study, to insist on the connection between scenes and sites of precarity, but not on their equivalence, and to do that by focusing on contiguity rather than analogy, or as I say, direct linear causality. I find this method very powerful, partially because it chimes so loudly for me with what I see going on both in the ecologically freaked out poetry of the 14th century and the equally but differently freaked out ecological poetry of the 21st century. <clears throat> in both cases, there's a profound and sustained hostility to thinking about environmental implication in a simple, linear, causal way. Instead, there's this emergent poetic tendency to stage metonymic relationships between often widely different ecological scenes. For example, Juliana Spar's 2001 book, This Connection of Everyone with Lungs, is a magnificent case in point. Her whole book, which is entirely in verse, enacts the metonymic and contiguous interdependency of the poet herself as she's living in Hawaii and kind of looking at parrots. 
<coughs> with the seemingly distant, but nevertheless contiguous with her, world system of the American military industrial complex. Likewise, I see a logic of radical metonymic relationality in the 1352 poem, Winter and Waster, which for those of you who do not have it on your bedstand, <laughs> is about sort of like crisis of resource allocation and a prince is invited to adjudicate the problem. The poem ends up debating about acts of environmental misuse as always inevitably having only sort of semi-visible but nevertheless present like sort of lines of contiguity among them. So in that poem, for example, misusing trees ends up creating like a cash flow shortage for the next generation of young people who live in London. Is this like an immediate direct causal link? No. Do we all nowadays sort of intuitively say, yes, that is how that works? Yeah. So back in 1352, similar thoughts. Because of what I'm writing on now, as I say, ideologies of waste, I'm going to spend the rest of my time here responding to Jennifer's third chapter, which is squarely on the ideas and ideologies of waste and wasting, though mostly in a modern Indian context. This chapter starts with the provocatively tongue-in-cheek comment, waste isn't what it used to be. As a medievalist, I can testify to that. <laughs> waste now primarily signifies to people, especially Americans, I think, in its nominal sense. <coughs> waste matter, the byproduct of industrialization. Garbage, we think waste, we think trash. But there's another meaning, as Jennifer points out and treats carefully throughout the chapter, an active meaning of laying waste, wasting, spoiling, ruining, <coughs> sorry, that must be attended to as well. Uh, especially in, in my period in early literature, and also, as it turns out, in literature written in post-colonial political situations. For Jennifer, there's a powerful accretion of meanings of waste in the British colonized Indian landscape in which wastelands, construed by colonialists as underused places, places sort of not yet enclosed and made ready for industrial or at least capitalist exploitation, these, these wasted places, these underused places, get wasted which is to say they get exploited and depleted, emptied out, or at least privatized and made unavailable for any kind of collective historical use, and that this wasting of the wastelands brings with it the risk of correlatively wasting the bodies of the people who live in or near the wastelands initially and are dependent on the wastelands for their actual initial condition, their pre-enclosure condition. <coughs> Sorry. Industrial wastelands wasted lives, as Jennifer puts it. In other words, the shift from a notionally underused landscape to an exploited landscape entails necessarily the wasting of human beings as resources that appertain to that land. This notion resonates loud and clear for me based on my own study of 14th century property law case transcripts, a wildly underread and fascinating <laughs> sort of page-turning archive. <clears throat> In a trial of the mid-1330s, there's a group of farmers who are sued by their lord, who had recently enclosed the wastes, the wastelands of the town, the actual wastes, called that in the document. The farmers got really angry at his privatizing of their ancient privilege to use the wastes. And I want to pause here to note that in the Middle Ages, wastelands were actually an extremely agriculturally important type of landscape, both for foraging and for fuel extraction. Losing access to the waste meant having no pannage for your pigs in the winter, so they would go and forage for acorns in the waste, and that's how they survived the nutrient debt nutrient-dense food, and it also meant having no peat to burn. <coughs> so the farmers were mad that this land was enclosed, and they decided to break into the enclosed wasteland and <coughs> lay waste to them. <laughs> it's, it's 
pretty meta, these farmers, <laughs> they're laying waste to the wasted wastelands. Okay, and the case transcript is like a little bit not sure how to phrase all of this stuff because it does get lexically awkward pretty quickly. <laughs> and they did it, as they say, because they felt their own livelihoods were in peril through the act of privatization. So it's extremely relevant with what you talk about in your third chapter. It's the kind of dynamic you would use in the in the more contemporary archives and in this these Indian short stories, in particular one called Dalvi. In both cases, the fundamental failure of understanding on the part of the hegemonic land controller is that the wastelands are not in fact valueless lands that need to be turned to profitability, but instead integral parts of the informal economies of people of lower socioeconomic status. Once you personify nature into a wounded because underutilized being, like the wastelands and how they need to be protected and something needs to be made of them, they deserve salvation, you effectively dehumanize all of the inhabitants who were already making use of that land for themselves in a non-exploitative but kind of organic, though I don't really like that word, way. Jennifer centers her argument in this chapter on Mahasweta Devi's short story, short story Dauli, which tells of a lower caste and widowed woman who lives at the margins of the wastelands, wastelands and who becomes pregnant by a Brahmin <clears throat> and eventually has to become a prostitute in order to support herself and her mother and child financially. Jennifer's argument suggests that the personification of the wasteland in the story is intimately connected with the objectification of the woman Dowley herself with her transformation from a widow into what the narrative calls a whore. I have a few questions I'd love to pose, Jennifer, about this part of your argument. Um, I thought at a few points that you take Dowley's turn to prostitution in part as an act of resistance to enclosure, to marginalization, to capitalization, and to dehumanization. It's her way of taking back agency in a situation that, because of her dual exploitation by male sexuality and exclusionary property law, puts her otherwise in a position of abjection and inaction. But at other points, it seemed very clear that you were suggesting that Dowley is, in fact, made an object by her entry into prostitution, that that choice is ultimately what wastes her life. So I wondered if you would parse that out for me a little more. At a slightly larger scale, I'd love to hear you talk a bit more about gender and waste in this short story and anywhere else that it might be um, relevant, partially because in, in my period, gender and waste are connected, but not in a very clear or consistent way. And it's something I'm trying to puzzle out, how the specific gendering of the wasted body matters at a larger scale. Um, I would also, and this is an idiosyncratic interest of mine, so if there's not time for it, throw it away. But I'd love for you to talk a little bit more about the physical reality of the wastelands in the short story. I, I was really interested in the jungle jungle distinction. Um, my sense was that jungle is this term that's used to describe a wasteland that's kind of emptied and maybe arid, and that jungle is more like f fertile and hypertrophic in some way. Um, so I wondered if you could say more about how that duality, like what, what is involved in the mental shift from a wasteland construed as a, sort of an empty place versus a wasteland construed in a, a place that's so maybe um, vegetationally rich that it's inaccessible. So. Thanks so much for listening to today's podcast celebrating Jennifer Wenzel's book, The Disposition of Nature, Environmental Crisis and World Literature. I hope you'll join us next time when we discuss Rashid Khalidi's book, The Hundred Years' War on Palestine. From Columbia University Society of Fellows and Heyman Center for the Humanities, I'm Anne Levitsky.